This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. We are going to be talking this morning about the redemption of cultures. The title of it is The Death and Resurrection of Every Culture. What does that mean? I invite you to take your Bibles and open up to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, verse 24 and 26. It's talking about the New Jerusalem. It's talking about the day when we don't need the sunshine, we don't need to turn on these lights, because Jesus is going to shine so brightly uh, that it just lights up the whole, the whole room, the whole city. Dee, hmm. you want to read that for sure. us? 24 and 26. Yeah. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Verse 26. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Jesus thought it was so important that he said it twice. Did you catch that? The nations are going to bring their glory into it. What's he talking about? What, what are the kings, what are the peoples of the earth walk in that they actually have some sort of glory that they take into this huge place that's lit up with Christ's brightness? This is the culture. This is the uniqueness, the specialness of the various nations. There is something distinct and special that it's like a shining stained glass window where each different culture, each nation, tribe, and tongue, and there are like 17,000 of these in the world today, different, distinct, unique people groups, people who speak and talk and eat and live differently. And like some people love to collect flowers, every flower they can find. Other people love to take beautiful pictures from different spots. Others are bird watchers. People collect different things. My mom collects magnets from around the world. Uh, Jesus loves to collect cultures. Really, he loves to collect people. That's all that really matters to him. But people are so distinct, so unique. You think of places you have traveled, places that you go, where everything is, is different and unique. Does anybody recognize this shirt? All right. You recognize it because it's your culture, right? Or, yes, Tepo is from Myanmar and of the Korean, Korean culture. Beautiful, isn't it? They make these, they design them, and as you go throughout Myanmar, you come to different ones of the 150 tribes, and they each have a different, unique cloth. Um, some just incredibly embroidered. And the food is different too. <laughs> you love eating at different restaurants? Can you imagine what it's going to taste like in heaven? Where, where we get to sample and try and put together. I don't know what it's going to be like. But we can clearly see that God loves the unique, the distinct flavors. He is the God of diversity who has created it and made it. Unfortunately, much of the world is busy fighting over the differences over the things that they don't see eye to eye on and not taking time to stop and relish and enjoy those things. Amen. Where does this come from? Why is there good in the various cultures? Um, before we go to that, though, we have just another verse, verse 27 there of Revelation 21. 
but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So this gives us a hint that not every bit of culture is coming into heaven, right? Not every bit of culture is good. We have this huge question. People say, hey, you know, in France, it's our culture to drink wine. Just join in. Just drink a little bit with us. You don't have to drink a lot. It's our culture. It's okay. Uh, other places we go, people say, you know, that's just the way we do things here. Come, it's our, it's our yearly holiday. You know, it, it, we don't even really remember what it means anymore. I'm sure it had some spiritual meaning. But just, you know, you're, you're spending the weekend with us. Come and, come and go to the celebration of the temple with us. It's our culture. So we have this great need to balance these two things, that there is beauty in the culture and there are things that must be challenged. Does that make sense? There is, there is much to look at. But where does the culture come from? Where does the good in the culture come from? Let's turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 19 to 20. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So somebody who's never had a chance to come to GYC, who's never had anybody open the Bible to them, who lives in the mountains of Bhutan or in the Sahara Desert, have they any opportunity to know God? Did you catch how clear it is? They are without what? Excuse. There's enough evidence in creation itself to gather and to grasp something about even the character of God. That's amazing. So no wonder in every culture in the world you see something about morality, something good that is there. It's not just made up or just something from the devil. It's actually something from observation. Gautama Siddhartha, the one who became known as the Buddha in Northeast India, he was an incredible observer of nature to be able to look and to see how things are and what can be learned from. And there are lessons everywhere. In Thailand, we have the beautiful hornbill. And the, the hornbill mates, they mate for as long as they live. They're not like the vultures or some other creatures. They are together forever. And the, the mother hornbill, she locks herself up in the tree with, with her babies as she's about to, to nest and puts the mud in, and the husband comes and feeds her faithfully every day. This is a, an incredible picture of what we should be with our spouses if we're married. The, the na nature is full of these things. So we don't have to be afraid of looking for value in culture. Let's look also at chapter 2, verse 14 to 15. Romans 2, beginning of verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Verse 15. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or excusing them. So besides nature, something is actually right in the human heart. Do you sense it? Even in little kids, if at Christmas time, big sister gets more than little brother, what, what does little brother think? It's not fair. It's not right. Uh, people anywhere, even if they say they do not believe in God and do not have a moral standard in the scriptures, 
when things are wrong, they know it. They feel it. And so that is because of who? Because of God. He himself has put something in the heart of every human being so that keen observers, like the religious leaders of the world, are able to look and to observe. So when we come, we can see, as we find truth, this statement from Education, page 13. She says, The world has had its great teachers, men of giant intellect and extensive research, men whose utterances have stimulated thought and opened to view vast fields of knowledge. And these men have been honored as guides and benefactors of the race. But there is one who stands higher than they. We can trace the line of the world's teachers as far back as human records extend, but the light was before them. As the moon and the stars of our solar system shine by the reflected light of the sun, so, as far as their teaching is true, do the world's great thinkers reflect the rays of the sun of righteousness. Every gleam of thought, every flash of intellect is, is from the light of the world. Does that inspire you? <laughs> it is exciting because we talked about in our second session the importance of affirming what others believe before we move to our differences. We're often evangelistic and want to tell people where they're wrong and come in shooting our truth at them. And they defend themselves. But when we come close, wherever we can, we win brothers and sisters. And they, they then have an open heart to being able to look at it. So when we know that this is fair and right to do because it is actually glory and beauty from God, it makes it feel more right to be doing that. It also, when you start to realize this, it awakens within you an idea of looking for the good in people instead of looking for the things that you don't agree with or don't like. Um, within the human condition, there is a selfishness and there is a longing to want to mold people into our image and our preferences. But this is a call to die to that. that the call of the gospel is a call to die to your own preferences and your own thoughts. That these are people who have value, and even though they may not believe what you believe, there are intrinsically good fibers in people they're in there somewhere and even in the cultures and we need to be looking for that because that is going to be our bridge to actually reach them you see the difference if you're only looking for things you don't agree with so you can stay where you are how are you going to build the bridge to get to where they are to bring them to you to the things that god is showing you does that make sense that's why this is such a beautiful and empowering quote so on the one hand, many times missionaries have gone into a new culture and just said, everything needs to go. This is of the devil. This is wrong. Here's the Christian culture, and we're bringing it to you, along with the tie, which I am not wearing today on purpose um, because I you know, took off my jewelry last night. No, no. I mean, we, it's cultural, right? Did the tie have any purpose or use here? Well, it is holding up your microphone. That's good. And it does kind of keep you warm around the neck, so maybe it's not quite jewelry. But it's a very cultural thing that I got to go without for 16 years living in Thailand and Cambodia. Uh, but culture, many times, has nothing to do with spirituality, or some many times it does. So it takes discernment, not just throwing everything out, but also not just accepting everything. Because in every culture, there definitely is bad. There is evil. There is selfishness. And that has to be examined. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, very familiar verse for us, but extremely important as we think about culture. Romans 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. 
And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So the vision here is to not let culture, the world, conform you, grab you, squeeze you, attract you, but instead to be transformed by the renewing of our mind through the Word of God, to take every aspect of our own culture and also the culture we're reaching out to. As we make friends with international students at our universities and high schools, as we reach out in the community to refugees and immigrants, these things come up. They become issues. Issues come up that we never dreamed of, that we never thought of. I see Shirley shaking her head. We are living close to each other about an hour away, and their church has begun to reach out to the Zomi refugees from Myanmar. And they suddenly realize these are Seventh-day Adventist Christians worshiping in our rooms, eat, fellowshipping together. We think totally differently. We're coming from different perspectives and cultures. Many times, just good things that are looked at differently, but sometimes things that have to be examined. Hmm. Here's a quote from Ellen White from Great Controversy 58 that shows what happens when we don't critically examine our culture and the culture we're reaching out to. A super, super good quote. She says, The advancing centuries witnessed a constant increase of error in the doctrines put forth from Rome. Even before the establishment of the papacy, the teachings of heathen philosophers had received attention and exerted an influence in the church. Many who professed conversion still clung to the tenets of their pagan philosophy and not only continued its study themselves, but urged it upon others as a means of extending their influence among the heathen. And serious errors were thus introduced into the Christian faith. It's with this mentality in mind that some go to the opposite extreme from the quote that we just had from education. We have to understand both sides of this, that not everything can stay, but it doesn't necessarily mean that everything has to go either. But there's a huge danger in conceding because, well, that's just part of their culture. Yes, but is that something that is to stay in their Christian experience? And that's what we're talking about now. How do we best discern these differences? So... Well, let's, let's, let's move on to really, to really pull it apart. Um, because this is not just a thing of the Roman Catholic past, of mixing no. paganism with Christianity. This is true of our Seventh-day Adventist church. We have a worldwide church in almost every country of the world. We have church members. And not in every people group. There's still 4,000 people groups that have almost no Christian witness. But in these various countries, we have Seventh-day Adventist principles of schools, who, well, sometimes when it comes up for election, may put a curse, go and get somebody and pay somebody to put a curse on their opponent so that they can be reelected as principal. Do you think that happens? <laughs> Do you think it may happen somewhere? What happens many times is people are baptized with an intellectual understanding, but the heart is not changed. And so, like my neighbor in Thailand, she was a Seventh-day Adventist Christian for 10 years, but when her son got sick and she prayed to Jesus and he wasn't healed, she went back to the witch doctor and asked them to pray and get healing from the spirits. These things are, are underlying, and without deep transformation, just like you and I, they fall back into sin. So there is a need for us to challenge the culture with the love of Jesus. Let's take a scenario that could happen here as you're reaching out and caring. You read for us this first sure. scenario. So one of the ladies in the church has been reaching out to a Chinese family who has recently been baptized. 
Then the father passes away and it's time for a funeral. The lady tries to involve the pastor as she hears him talking about various ceremonies that she doesn't understand. He tells her not to worry about it, but to let the family do whatever their culture and customs are, since many non-Christian Chinese family members will come and will be offended, even turned off from Christianity if the cultural customs are not kept. So what do you think of that? Is that a good response to a cultural challenge? Do you understand the question there? This is a funeral type situation. One lady out of her family is now a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, but as as the funeral is being planned, she's worried about how to interact with it. She has a sense that there are some things tied to spirits or wrong beliefs that she shouldn't do anymore. But her pastor's advice is, what matters is being kind and caring to your family so they can be drawn towards Christianity. Just go ahead and do whatever they do. What do you think of that? What's the danger in that? Yes, Sean. Let's use the microphone so we can record it as well. It seems to have some dangerous elements of syncretism, possibly condoning certain areas. If others do know that this is a Seventh-day Adventist woman and she bows down to the little altar where they offer for the spirits or something, it may tell them, oh, well, Seventh-day Adventists believe in spirit worship too. That that's, sounds like a good Christian religion. So it could create more questions than answers. All right. That's excellent. Thank you, Sean. It, it can actually impact the influence as well as the person personally. Another, another thought right up here. How you guys feel about the input and intervention of the Holy Spirit? But I think the Holy Spirit has a say in every culture. He knows more about each and every culture than all of us put together. And I think that in that case of that lady that uh, became widow dear, I think that a spiritual Adventist pastor or leader should get a hold of the Holy Spirit and ask him for guidance of what to do, how to do it, and what, to, what not to do, and how not to do it. Because a lot of times our best, our best uh, observation or or opinion as human beings can be the wrong one. So we better ask him and he will lead us. He will tell us exactly how to do it, what to do, it, and the problem will, solve, will be solved, and not just for that time, but for the future too. Amen. Thank you very much. To rely upon the Holy Spirit to be able to lead and guide you into truth. There was another hand right back here. Also, may open the doors since she's the only Adventist in the family that she may drift away and wind up leaving the church. Oh, that's a hugely important fact. If she is not secure and strong and just goes along with what her family does, she may easily return back to where she came from. So, there is a need for close interaction between new Christian family and the new convert to understand culture, to know what to do and what not to do for her salvation's sake for the family they are trying to reach, and for the integrity of the gospel that's shared. That's very helpful. Thank you. Another scenario. Let's take another one very similar, um, but responded to in a different way by the church. Those are fantastic answers, by the way. Amen. In another church, recent immigrants from a Buddhist family have also been baptized. Sadly, a young daughter has recently died, and the family is heartbroken. They arranged to have her cremated and make plans for the 30-day, 100-day, and one-year future ceremonies. 
The church board quickly meets and sent a representative to tell the family that no Christian should be cremated as it desecrates the body God made and is the Buddhist way. They also say that one, only one funeral is necessary and that it must be in the church. Okay, how do you feel about the way that church responded? They basically said to her, don't do the, the typical three different funerals and make sure it's not a cremation. That's wrong. That's the Buddhist way, not the Christian way. What do you think of their response to this kind of cultural situation? Please, back there. They, they probably should have started by trying to understand why they did those different ceremonies and what the significance Amen. was or something like that. Okay, so that's, that's an excellent first starting point. Seek to understand, seek to know what does it mean. Okay, what else? How else would you work with this situation in a better way? Surely. It just goes along a little bit what this lady said about the cremation. Uh, cremationists is can be a Christian way or is a Christian way it's a lot, practiced a lot more now but again it would be what does the meaning be in uh, Buddhism the reason why they do that is that connected in some way that there does need to be a distinction for that particular situation alright thank you so they need to explore the idea of cremation from the biblical standpoint Stand back to look at it instead of just assuming that's wrong. It's not the Christian way. You have to be buried. They should be able to look at it, open up the scripture, and say, what is the important principle in scripture? And, and of course, we could spend a while discussing and talking that, and that's not our purpose here. That's a wonderful um, topic, dear. I wonder, if, since you guys seem, seem uh, more knowledgeable about this, does Sister White sheds any light regarding that topic. Regarding cremation in particular. Yes. Not yes. that I'm aware of. If anyone else says, please raise your hand. Um, I think we have, from my understanding, a clear scriptural principle that the body returns to dust and that God is going to raise the dead and he is going to recreate the body. That he has no problem taking the dust that has been scattered across the ocean or taking the dust that has taken a hundred years to be there in the coffin. Um, before it got to that point. Um, that's yeah. just my quick, quick take on it. I'm pretty sure the church's official position is that they do not object. Uh, someone asked me, I was giving Bible studies too, and I looked into it, it as a while ago, um, but I'm pretty sure there's no, no objection in that. So taking time to listen, taking time to understand the meaning, and then make a decision. Let me just give one idea there. It is, it is basically, um, I think, Benya, you can help me out if I'm wrong here, but I think basically that's the typical thing in Thailand is that there is an immediate funeral that's, that's complicated and, and very important to the people, then 30 days, 100 days, or at least one or the other of those, and then a year later, so that there's a time of remembrance. Now that has to be examined carefully because some of the things that are done at those times are to help the soul to move on to its next life, and if they are not done correctly, then there's going to be problems with the spirit. But the idea of remembering not just on the day they died, but at a, a year later, at times later, is something that could be adapted. Without taking time to wrestle it through together biblically and with people of both cultures, you're not going to get to go where you want to go. Um, so let's, okay. That's the, so what, what kind of questions um, can, we, can we bring to it 
that will help this interaction. And maybe you're thinking, okay, I'm not in the mission field. I'm not planting a church somewhere. Uh, what is this really going to matter to me? Well, at the very end, we're going to look at our own culture and talk about examining ours because I believe that most Christians are really syncretistic Christians. They have not challenged their culture and they are living like the world, but they haven't really processed it. Whereas we look at other people and we say, ah, they're still offering to the spirits. Oh, why they're praying in a way that's, you know, really wrong and going to connect them to the wrong side. But we ourselves are, are not. But the reality is that any of us who begin to reach out cross-culturally are going to come up to things that need to be addressed for their sake as well as our own personal growth. And if we open our church, as about 140 churches across North America have, to ethnic church plants right in their own place, all kinds of issues do come up. And instead of it being a frustrating thing, it can be an exciting thing of exploration, learning more about the beauty of God through the other cultures instead of just being frustrated by differences. So let's look at some questions together. Actually, the first one there. Let's, let's start back with just one. What in the culture can we keep because it is beautiful, truthful, or noble, and will thus give glory and honor to God? So that ties to that first thing that we looked at, right? Being able to see and to appreciate something that is truly good, is really something beautiful, like the good food, right? <laughs> um, let's go on to another couple, and then we're going we're gonna to actually look at some things here. What in the culture is directly against biblical teaching? That's kind of an obvious one, right? And the third one, what in the culture is tied in any way to evil spirits? So those would be just some three first basic questions that we might address. So let me, let me share with you. Let's go back there let's, for a moment. Um, when we went to Cambodia, we started in the refugee camps for six months. And then we moved into Phnom Penh, the city, the capital city there. Um, with a lot of other refugees that were repatriating from the camps. And there was no Seventh-day Adventist church in Cambodia at that time. Um, the, during the genocide, the few Christians that were there had mostly been killed or had fled the country. And so it was a brand new place to see God's church planted among about 12 million people. So there were maybe 300 of us that were scattered around the country that were Seventh-day Adventists now, so no real church, but a few people trying to share. So as the church began to grow over the next few years, everything was new and fresh. It wasn't like going to a church that's been operating for 100 years and trying to change things. It was exciting to begin to think, what should church look like? What should we do? How do we sing? What songs do we sing? Do we have Sabbath school like we always did in America, or do we do something different? And, and what about weddings? What about funerals? So we got to wrestle with it and open up the Bible and say, what does it really mean to worship God? And how would it look? Is there anything in the culture that really is a beautiful thing of worship, a beautiful way that is representative? So have any of you been to a Buddhist temple before? Okay, a few of you. As, as people come into the temple, what do they first do? They kneel down. Before they kneel down at the door, what do they do? Take off your shoes. Okay, walking into the, to the temple with your shoes might just get you kicked out for lack of respect. So the shoes are off. They come in, and then I heard you say they bow down. And 
Um, do they just, you know, kind of like this, kind of casual? No, they're on their knees, they're on their face, clear down, usually three times to honor the triple gem in Buddhism. Um, so there's a high level of respect towards the Buddha statue, and for most of them, it's not just a statue, that's towards the, the whole religion, towards the whole meaning of what the um, Buddha stood for. So in that, we begin to wrestle with that. Should we take our shoes off in our Cambodian church? Should we kneel when we pray or sit or stand? America, a lot of times, you know, they stand to respect the president as he comes in. No king, so they're not bowing down. They're standing. So should we do that? You know, there's certain places you go in Southeast Asia where you can see the exact style of the 1950 church in America. It's the exact same standing times, kneeling times, and same songs. But we got to start over. So you're asking the question, what is beautiful? What is truthful? Does the Bible talk about taking off shoes? Mm -hmm. A little bit. <clears throat> Moses, okay, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. How about kneeling? All through Scripture. Very much. I don't, you know, you, you, you're hard-pressed to find a place about standing or sitting to pray. But there's definitely lots of kneeling. So that's something good that we can hold on to. Um, when it came to weddings, that was even more interesting because they have all kinds of ceremonies that they do. They do some cutting of the hair and um, take and tie the couple's wrists together and everybody comes by and gives their blessing, pours some water, uh, do, does different things. In Cambodia, the, the bride would get down and wash the feet of the groom. And, and then, of course, the monks come in and give their blessings, and there's this big, long procession from the bride's house to the groom's house, you know, the groom's house to the bride's house, and they're carrying big plates of pig, pig's head, and big <laughs> bottles of alcohol, and bowls of rice, and different things all marching down. So you're asking yourself, well, shall we just do a wedding like they do in America? <laughs> well, one of the pastors got married, um, he was from America, though he was Cambodian. His wife was Malaysian. And after the wedding, I heard a Cambodian visitor say, ah, no wonder there's so many divorces in America. Did you see how short that wedding was? That was only 45 minutes long. Why, we used to have ours for three whole days. And I thought, mm, okay, there's one perspective. Western wedding in Cambodia. What can we do to know the local culture and appreciate its good parts? So we asked these kind of questions. And, and at one of the weddings, they decided, yes, let's wash each other's feet. That's biblical. But let's have the groom wash the bride's feet, too. And in my son's wedding, I have a Cambodian son. Uh, it's, his story is on one of the podcasts at, at the website, Reach the World Next Door. He, he's now 28. But when he was married, they decided not just to wash each other's feet, but to also wash the parents' feet. At one of these weddings, some of the Cambodians in the village turned and said, you are better Cambodians than we are. They said that to the Christian, Christian Cambodians there because they saw that we had taken time to value their culture, keep everything we could. But the monk's blessings, no, the pastor was praying. And that tying of strings together to tie the wrists together, well, there seemed to be some connection to spirits, so they chose not to do that. But that is the fun of wrestling with the culture and asking is there something in it that we shouldn't do? Hmm. Let's go to the next scenario, scenario number three. 
A group of Christians are trying to reach Buddhists. They decide to hold meditation classes with the intention of introducing Buddhists to God. They kneel on the floor and chant scripture. They seek to clear out their minds by breathing in and out, confessing their sins as they breathe out, and asking for God's grace as they breathe in. The setting is surrounded by plants and flowers, through which they hope to show those attending that God is the Creator, and there's a beautiful smell of incense burning in the background. Ah, it gets more complicated. All right, tell me what you think about this kind of outreach. We'll take the microphone again and give me your input, your thought. How would you work with something like this? <laughs> Won't touch it with a 10-foot pole, they Yeah, say. don't everybody jump at once. Sean, Sean's brave there. There you go. Concerns, anything that you would affirm? I'm assessing this uh, scenario on multiple points. So I'm looking at this uh, concept of kneeling. That doesn't seem to be problematic or syncretistic. Um, but when it's referring to the chanting of scripture, um, it sounds like it could be doing it in a way that maybe the people aren't fully cognizant of the meaning of the words of it. So maybe uh, slowing that down or taking versus more in a, in a frame of biblical meditation rather than Eastern form of meditation, just using biblical words. Um, and then also uh, looking into more deeply what incense means, whether that has any ties to spirits, even if it's a nice smell. Um, and then this concept of confession of sin, um, whether that would be like corporate sin or that's, if that's their own private sin that they're making in a public setting it may it may uh, cause issues more along the kind of catholic concept of confessing to another human your sins so i'm just kind of okay. trying to look at some of the things that could be problematic but maybe in and of themselves could be modified all right thank you so having to wrestle with it all right we have got uh, a comment up here surely this kind of meditation is coming into the adventist church and it comes from the mystics, Catholic mystics. And so it's not just coming from the Buddhist standpoint. And uh, if you start looking into the history, it'll open your eyes. Thank you very much. There is a huge difference in various forms of meditation. So that must be looked at and examined. What is biblical meditation? <coughs> Excuse me. What is Buddhist meditation? What is Catholic, mystic type of meditation. We have to lay these out and look at them. We don't have time to get into that part deeply now, but if you're interested, send me an email to scott.griswold at asapministries.org. You can find it at the Reach the World Next Door website also. And I have a, an article that I've written um, that will help open up some of those things. Now, did, do you want to make another comment? <coughs> <coughs> A couple thoughts. I, I kind of like the plants and flowers. That sounds sort of nice, but I think my biggest problem is if these are people who are Buddhist that they're trying to reach out to, there's probably going to be a lot of confusion. Um, because they may, they're not seeing any clear difference, just like somebody said, different words, but the same practices. So without, if you're just trying, like transferring the same stuff over to sort of Christian version of it, they're not going to realize maybe that there are some differences there. 
So we are looking at three questions we've already asked. Is there something beautiful that glorifies God in the culture that we can keep? Is there something that's not biblical, that's contrary to what the scriptures tell us to do? And is there something that is tied to spirits? Let's look at four more questions that help us to go deeper when it becomes more complex like this and we wonder what to do. The first one, what does this practice mean? Now, <clears throat> that was the first thing you said is, hey, have you listened? Have you asked them what does this mean? On the next slide, there is a, a way to understand that we call die, D-I-E. The first letter, D, stands for description. So you might ask, you might say, well, let's describe this Buddhist, this, let's describe this meditation practice. What do they do in meditation? So perhaps you just describe it. No evaluation yet, no judgment on it, but you just look at it and say, what are they doing? And you look and you see the people repeating a phrase over and over and over. And you say, okay, do they understand what they're saying? No, it doesn't appear that they do. Um, why do they seem to be doing it? You know, well, I'm not sure, I can't tell. They're, they're at a funeral and they're saying it over and over. And there's a monk up front. I'm not sure what it's about. But they're sitting there, they're repeating it, and when they're done, then they go back to talking and they're smiling and they carry on. Okay, next, next letter, I, interpretation. What does it mean? I need your interpretation, help me know. Friend, can you tell me what you were saying? I don't know what I was saying. That's what the monk tells us to say, and it, it's powerful. It's got, it's got ability to help our friend who just died go better on to the next life. So, oh, okay, that's what it means. You don't know what it means, but that's what it means. All right, we understand the interpretation. Now, let's, let's evaluate it. Can we help the dead go on? No, the Bible says the living know that they shall die, the dead know nothing. That's in God's hands. We are saved through Jesus. So we can begin to evaluate. But that first step is, what does it mean? Next question, question number five in our list. Will this take away from the honor that is to be given to God as the only creator, protector, and provider? Now, this is huge. We have one true God, one creator, one protector, one provider. And much of what is done in various religions is to get those same things. I see men, you know, before it was happening here in America with all the tattoos, I'd go to Thailand, Cambodia, different places, and see these guys, monks and others, tattooed everywhere. You ask, what is it for? Text me from the spirits. I can go anywhere. Gun can't hit me. Bullets can't take me down. I am protected. It had deeply spiritual meaning. And it was giving honor to someone else besides God as a protector. So that one's a pretty easy one to answer. But many of the other questions that rise is, in what way is this trying to help provide something that God has already provided? Mm -hmm. And by, giving, by doing it, will give honor to someone else or to a spirit rather than to God. It says in Colossians 2, 8 to 10, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. So... Paul is warning the Colossians who come not from a Christian background to watch out. Even now that you've become a Christian, be careful. Some philosophy, some empty deceit, some tradition is going to take you away from the fullness of Christ. 
Jesus has given you everything you need. So watch out. The enemy would like to take away from his glory. The, the next one, number six, says, will this take away from the glory of Jesus as the only Savior from sin and death? Uh, that's, that's huge. And that's where we come to this idea of meditation. Let's look at the next text and, uh, and then apply it to what we've been talking about. Colossians 2, 20-23. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you still subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. That's powerful. When we think about the emerging church, the, the mystic meditation things that are coming in to Christian churches, many people are like, well, what's the big deal? This is good. This connects you to God. So you're walking through a maze and a labyrinth, and it's, you know, it's just different. It's cool. It's, not, it's unique. unique. You know, it's a different kind of meditation, kind of experience. What's the big deal? Why are you so worried? But when you stop and you recognize it's not merely that it's coming from a bad source, Eastern mysticism or Catholic mysticism or whatever, but the, what is happening is that it is replacing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is something you are doing. It is something you are practicing rather than the reception of what Jesus has done in his death and his resurrection. Jesus has died with your sins upon him. He has not only forgiven you of your sins, but he has freed you from your sins. Romans 6, Romans 8, 2 Corinthians 5, 14-21, Galatians 2.20, these are the places that tell us you died with Christ, you are set free from your selfishness, from your sin, you're a new creature in Christ, everything you need is given you in Jesus. What are you doing? All these other practices for trying to get there, trying to win something. Paul says that in Colossians 2, he says, you used to do these things, but you died. Don't forget who you are. We're very prone as Christians, I think, to forget that, that we, 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 we're walking in a process and forget our new identity. That's what, who we used to be. That's what you used to do. And disassociating from those things, that you're something better, you're something new, and something more full, and you're complete in Him. So we are looking at the death and resurrection of every culture. That's where we come to our title. We are asking God to search our hearts, to come and speak to us, to bring us to a different level in relation to our own culture and their culture where the bad things can die and through Jesus the good things can become even more beautiful and blessed. The last question that we're, we're talking about here is simply, even if you will personally do not feel wrong about doing it, will it cause someone else to stumble? And that comes from Romans 14, which we won't take time to read. But the idea that even if you're okay doing it and there's nothing wrong with it, what is somebody else going to think? I think of Loigertong in Thailand, of a fun celebration that people like to get into and do. They cut banana stalks off and make little slices and they all decorate and make this cute little thing to float on the river. And they have contests to see who's the best. And um, they plant, I don't know what all they do on that day, there's lots of things. But um, they take their little boat and float it on the river. Well. Lots of Christians participate and get in and do it with them and it's just a fun time to be together, is it? Well, that's something you have to examine as a church. And we took time 
to meet together with different leaders of the church to sit down and say, let's think about it. What does it mean? Do people understand it? Do they know what's going on? If we do it and weird means nothing to us, is it okay? Um, well, but what about the people who are watching? I mean, they know when you go down, you're asking forgiveness from the water goddess. Um, at least some of them know that. And saying sorry for the ways that you're polluting the water throughout Thailand and, and asking forgiveness from different sources. Uh, different pieces that you just have to slow down and wrestle with and ask and think about. People can say the same thing of Christmas. Uh, you know, don't you know that that tree has this background in paganism and various things? And then you look at Ellen White's writings and she says, that's the time people are thinking about Christ. Of course it's not the day of his birth. Yes, we know the pagan backgrounds, but let's turn the minds towards Christ and let's use things in the right way. So this is not a simple topic, not an easy thing. Sean, go ahead and share with us we, there real quick. Yeah. And then we have, so we've got we have two more points to make before we close. We've got five minutes. So it seems that by taking the counsel that has been given to us in the spirit of prophecy in regard to the way that we can transform the holiday of Christmas, that we would do well when interfacing with other cultures to be able to actually study out the days that they reverence, that they appreciate, and finding ways to actually transform meanings to, re to, to reveal Christ to them. Yes, this is, this is a great challenge of contextualizing ceremonies, and it has to be done very carefully and very prayerfully. Um, but if you don't replace people will do it anyway. They will, they will just fall back into it. They just naturally do it and relatives pressure them. But if you wrestle it through together until you come to a decision, no, we can't do that the holiday because it's all about the dead and taking care of the dead. Or yes, we can do certain things, but other things we should not do and talk and pray and help one another. This is a crucial area that is important as you reach out to international students, immigrants, and refugees, anybody of another culture, because if you don't help them, to integrate it into their lives, the gospel into their lives, some area of their life will not be beautiful. Mm. Think of the parable of Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is like a woman who took yeast and mixed it into the flour and mixed and mixed. My mother used to make 24 loaves of bread at a time to feed all of his kids. See, little round, round juice cans, 24, 12 in the top, 12 in the bottom oven. And she would pound that that mixture and let it rise and pound it back down. I just watched her teach my son how to do it over Christmas. Uh, that is the gospel. That is what you get to do together. Mm. But now the question we want to bring to you is what about your own culture? Yeah. In what ways have the culture of your world, if it's America, it's crept in? You know, we, we don't often see ourselves, but we have to ask the question, has sexual impurity become something pleasurable or something even to laugh at simply because of movies and what's on the internet? Has the materialism of America, the incredible wealth that we have that we assume we deserve? I, don't, I, don't have, I forgot to bring a lunch, so I deserve to spend 20 bucks to eat today when $20 may feed a family for a month in another country. We just assume it's okay and it's right because we all do it. But do we stop and challenge ourselves by the Word of God, which says, if you have food, if you have two pieces, share with him who has none. There's this equality that John talked about, that we are called to share, we are called to give. So that's, that's just a, an earnest call to reflect. You had something yes. to quote you wanted to share as we um, close. 
we're not immune to this, even as Seventh-day Adventists, and especially as Americans or Westerners, that there are a bunch of things that we're embracing, and most of them involve our comfort. The gospel is not just a call for us. It, it, the gospel involves more than just our comfort. In fact, a lot of it involves us negating our comfort, the things that we think we need for something even better. And you're hearing that call a lot this week. But this is from a book called Radical, Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream by David Platt. Um, I wish an Adventist would have written this book. It's very, very good. It says, I'm convinced that we as Christ followers in American churches have embraced values and ideas that are not only unbiblical, but that actually contradict the gospel we claim to believe. And I'm convinced that we have a choice. You and I can choose to continue with business as usual in the Christian life, in the church as a whole, enjoying success based upon the standards defined by the culture around us, or we can take an honest look at the Jesus of the Bible and dare to ask what the consequences might be if we really believed him and obeyed him. But if Jesus is who he said he is, and if his promises are as rewarding as the Bible claimed they are, then we may discover that satisfaction in our lives and success in the church are not found in what our culture deems most important, but in radical abandonment to Jesus. I challenge each of us in this room this morning and each of us who are listening, am I living for my comfort and my ease or am I living for the glory of God? Am I yielding my educational choices? Am I yielding my spouse choices? Am I yielding my vocational choices? Am I building the American dream of my mind instead of asking God what He wants for my life? Would you be willing to take God at His word, that He knows the plans that He has for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans for a future, and allow Him to make your plans? And so I strongly encourage you today to earnestly pray about that and to not run from Jesus whenever you can tell that what He's about to ask of you, you may not want. Let Him have your hearts. Let Him have your will. And you will have a far better experience than what you thought you needed. She talks about that in the chapter in Desire of Ages about the, the death and imprisonment of John. Um, it's beautiful, beautiful chapter. So, Can you help me with has this made sense today? Has this been helpful as far as just kind of the appropriate questions to be asking regarding culture, what's to stay, what's to go? Has this been helpful for you guys? Good. I thought the biblical principles to start were very, very well laid out. Um, Scott has been handing out these little white pieces of paper. These are decision cards. Would you like to explain those? Sure. For those who haven't filled them out already. It is so easy to leave a seminar like, or a weekend like this, very inspired, and then within a week, life goes back to normal. Hopefully not. The Holy Spirit is able to do exceedingly above what we can ask or think if we let Him. But I invite you to choose a specific decision that will help you to put into practice the things we've talked about today and other days. The first one is, I will make one solid friendship with somebody of another religion or culture in the next six months. That would be very easy and very fun. I enjoyed doing it just in this last semester with uh, a group, an international grow group on campus with international students. And such a joy to make their friendship. So if that's something you'd be willing to do, just check that there. Secondly, I will pray for the world next door for at least 30 days. If you go online at reachtheworldnextdoor.com, you will find a prayer guide that you can download or you can just view there. You can also order them to do with a small group. If you'd like to do that, check that there. Third, I will study, experience, and complete the cross-cultural mission training kit, Reach the World Next Door. This is a kit. We have a box of them at our booth at 
320 what? Uh, 527. 527. ASAP Ministries booth there, right next to the British flag. Um, that we have a few copies that will be free here. Normally they're $50. But if you would be willing to commit to leading your church into action in your community or at your university or high school, then we'd love to share one with you and be in touch with you as you take people out to make a huge difference for the finishing of God's work. And finally, I do a weekly podcast called Reach the World ASAP, where we highlight the mission needs around the world and things that people are doing to finish the work. So just fill this out, if you will, and leave it right where you're sitting. We're going to say a prayer together, and then it's time for any of you who are willing to go out and to touch Louisville for Christ. May God lead you to some of the 50,000 foreigners in the city and use the My Language, My Life cards, which are in the back. The ones that are blank on the back you can take for your own cities, and the ones that have a phone number are for right here in this community. Let's stand and pray together. Father in heaven, our hearts are humbled because we know that we also have syncretized our firm belief in Jesus alone as our Savior, Protector, and Lord, the one who tells us what to do with the things of the world. Lord, please forgive us. Please cleanse us. Let the selfishness, the worldly things in us die through the cross of Christ, not through our own attempts to do what's right, but through faith in what Jesus has already done on the cross. May we rise again in new life to be a new creature created with Christ in us, the hope of glory, complete in Jesus, not needing anything else, but loving and adoring only you. Lord, help us to value people of other cultures, to see the good, to draw it out, and then to help them also to have that experience of victory and new life in Jesus Christ. We especially pray for the people in Louisville that will be receiving literature or friend friendship, visitation today, open their hearts, prepare them in advance, give us the courage to love, to share, and to go. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.